A Cherished Eyeball Brown Family Christmas Letter, 1963 Elizabeth is in the sixth grade. No special interest. Is good fun and pleasant company. Can't really think of anything special to say about her. Brown Family Christmas Letter, 1964 Elizabeth is a Beatles fan, likes to work with a microscope, and slices up animals, spreading frog and mud puppy guts all over the kitchen, and has a cherished cow's eyeball and sheep's heart in a tub of alcohol in her closet. Looks like I became more interesting in 1964. Yes, I did go through a phase of dissecting pickled mud puppies that I bought at a very complete hobby shop, and animal hearts gathered from the butcher. However, in my defense, I would like to say that my mother embellished her description with her usual dramatic flair. No public kitchen display was involved. I shielded my family's delicate sensibilities by confining my work to my bedroom. I would use the more scientific word organs rather than the gorier guts, and I take particular issue with the word cherished. Yes, I had an eyeball. Yes, I started in a bucket. I do recall the humors in that eyeball, vitreous and aqueous, suffused with the penetrating odor of the preservative formaldehyde. But no, I did not have an emotional attachment to the eyeball. More intriguing is why my mother reported my peculiar hobby with such delight. This Christmas letter was sent to a vast network of family and friends, some close, many tenuous, who might have feared that this sweet twelve-year-old was on a slippery slope towards an unhealthy relationship with roadkill. Why was my mother so excited for me? Born in 1927, my mother grew up in an era of women with limited options. College was primarily a placeholder until marriage, with no expectation that women would have a professional career. She graduated in 1949, a few years after her older brother returned from World War II. Their father, my grandfather, set my uncle up as a stockbroker in his company. He slotted my bright and creative mother into a job as a secretary for one of his business friends. She met my father in the summer following graduation, was engaged by Christmas, and married the following March. Their firstborn, a son, arrived within the year, followed by a daughter, me, and four more sons. Her career as a secretary was quickly forgotten. On a bank form filled out to create a safety deposit box, she listed her occupation as housewife. Even as a kid, I sensed my mother's frustration that society undervalued her talents. She wrote little ditties to sing at birthdays and family occasions. One memorable song included the lyrics, What happened to all the priceless, precious knowledge that I learned at Vassar College? All I do is wipe out sinks filled with spit and grit. The chorus consisted of multiple repetitions of the words spit and grit. In an earlier Christmas letter, she described me as a tomboy, through and through an identity she shared. My mother was the one who taught me how to throw a ball to save me from the humiliation of throwing like a girl, taught me the arcane rules of baseball like drop third strike or infield fly rule so that I could compete equally with the boys. I climbed trees. I jumped off the roof of our house. My fingernails were dark with dirt. I didn't play with dolls, and I only read Hardy Boy mysteries, never the companion Nancy Drew mysteries. I was spunky and plucky qualities she admired. In the 1963 letter, she included an excited paragraph describing my older brother's interest in radios and electronics. 
Perhaps she could see his future more clearly. Not only wide open with the man's options, but now my brother could march forward with a marketable talent. I was still a blank slate that year, and my mother might have sensed my uncertain future. As puberty approached, my socially accepted rough-and-tumble days were drawing to a close. Society considered the spunk of a tomboy endearing in childhood, but adolescent girls were encouraged to shed that identity and become more feminine. My mother began to replace my unisex wardrobe with gender-specific clothes. I recall a floral plint shirt with a demure Peter Pan collar, color-coordinated with matching shorts. The zipper ran up the side of the shorts instead of in the front like all my other pants. Dancing school began in 1964, and my mother bought me a dress, stockings, and some sort of party shoes. This was my slippery slope. Would I follow the expected path and develop an interest in sewing and fashion? Would I spend hours with hair and makeup? Would I stop having boys as friends? Would I wait breathlessly for a boy to steal my hat at the winter skating rink and wear a long tasseled hat just for that purpose? What were my mother's hopes for me? I had already shown early ambivalence toward the traditional path to motherhood. In our 1958 yearbook, our class was asked, What would you like to be when you grow up? I responded, I guess I'll be a mother, perhaps spoken with a note of resignation. Now, one year later, in 1964, my mother sees me blossoming. My hobby may have been peculiar to many, but that was its charm. Her daughter's spunky tomboy spirit wasn't going to be sucked dry by cultural norms. She was going to dissect things, and she wasn't going to step aside and let the boys do all the fun stuff. My mother went all in on dissection. She drove me to the hobby shop, helped me order pickled animals from the science catalog, and got the cow and sheep's hearts from the butcher. I used them in a science fair exhibit of comparative hearts. That was an absolute sensation. In 1964, on the cusp of women's liberation, my mother now sees opportunities opening for me, up in my room, wielding a knife, ready to puncture a cherished cow's eyeball.